This is the Bama Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we explore the seventh and eighth chapters of Understanding the Jewish Roots of Christianity, discussing the divergence of Judaism and Christianity, and analyzing the relationship between the two groups in the centuries since. Yep. This is another one of those chapters when I was reading the book. I just, I, I was reading it going, oh, wow, there's so much here that I agree with on a topic that it's so hard to find things that I agree with. So... I was just so pleased to read this chapter. It was so wonderful. Well, not really wonderful. That would be the wrong word to give it. But, I mean, the parting of ways between, and the phrasing that they use here, the ecclesia, kind of referring to that Christian idea of church and the synagogue. So the subtitle here, when and how did the ecclesia split from the synagogue? Chapter written by Isaac W. Oliver. Yeah. He's a... Uh... Yeah, he got his PhD from the University of Michigan, and he is an associate professor of religious studies at Bradley University, and uh, has written a whole bunch of stuff, of course, and uh, yeah. Good. Um, Well, I thought what he had done here was just one of the best jobs of pulling together all the pieces that are on the table and presenting them just very, very well. Um, He's going to spend less time trying to decide... Uh, which one kind of wins the day, which theory, which piece is it? And instead say, it's likely kind of all of these things working throughout history, which is probably a even wiser way of doing the conversation than I did in session five. But I digress. I mean, as we've talked about many times, like our view of church history is from our one vantage point, kind of tracing things back right. to the beginning from where we start. But there are many divergent paths, and the points at which they diverge are um, pretty varied. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I was offering like an, an overcorrective to, I think, assumptions that we often just kind of passively make. And uh, I think because of that, we actually kind of see history really wrong. So I think in session five, we kind of corrected against that. And uh, Dr. Oliver here is going to do a good job of just pulling everything uh, together and presenting it really well. Appreciate it. So chapter seven of this book, um, why do Christians go to church and Jews go to synagogue, he says, if Jesus and his first followers were all Jewish? The Jewish roots of Christianity, which biblical scholarship has recovered in recent dec- decades, makes this question all the more striking. A little bit later, he says, beginning already in the second century, St. Ignatius of Antioch uh, roundly contrasted Christianity or Christianismas with Judaism, Udaismas. Christianity was not Judaism. So when and how did the Ecclesia split from the synagogue? Uh, I would slightly rephrase this question. Dr. Oliver says, to avoid the assumption that this split occurred unilaterally in one direction, that is at the Ecclesia splitting from the synagogue by asking when and how did the Ecclesia and the synagogue split. So he prefers to not say it's going one direction, but that there's a relationship between the two. Seems like a probably a good, probably good assumption. Indeed. Yeah. Has a little section there next on um, just some good things to keep in mind when we talk about the ecclesia, which translates, what's the word for ecclesia, church, or Brent? 
and giving it away there. Yeah, that's that's what we commonly translate as church. Yep, yep. So he says, the word church may conjure up images of beautiful buildings or cathedrals purposely designed for Christian worship. Yet such church structures did not exist in the first century. Moreover, the word church, especially when capitalized, may convey a sense of ecclesiastical uh, uniformity, as if the first century followers of Jesus were some com- had some complete theological agreement on every matter. In reality, the situation on the ground was messy from the very beginning. Paul's letters, the earliest documents of the New Testament, attest to factions among the first generation of Christ followers. There were multiple ecclesiae, ab initio, I don't know my Latin very well. I'm assuming that. Heck if I know what that is. Latin, Greek, what is that? Is that Latin? I don't know. I thought so. Greek? I don't know. I thought it was Greek. Could be Greek. (laughs) Now we're really going to sound stupid. Um, In fact, some New Testament texts, notably 1 Peter, do not even employ ecclesia terminology as a a group group designation for Christ followers, while the letter of James... Oh, man. This this little bit about James. I was like, no way. Yeah, because James 2, particularly 2-2... Two verse two says that they gathered in synagogues. Tell me what you found as you looked at it. Uh, yeah, so you know, in in the original language, it says synagogues, but every English translation says, and not only English, but but French and German and uh, Spanish. I believe Portuguese was kind of an exception, but basically all the translations translate the synagogue term away and call it an assembly or whatever. <laughs> Oh, man. Can be frustrating some days, can it? Uh, so then he, he makes us some similar points about synagogue, too. So we need to make sure we're thinking the right thing when we think ecclesia. We also need to do the same thing when we think synagogue. Some of the preceding qualifications, Dr. Oliver says, are also pertinent for properly appreciating the nature and function of ancient Jewish synagogues. Jewish synagogues were spread across ancient Greco-Roman world. Undoubtedly, many of these synagogues shared much in common, hosting an array of activities, social, civic, educational, and of course, religious liturgical events, especially uh, the reading of Torah, Jewish scripture. But Jewish synagogues were not centrally administered. Neither Sadducees, nor Pharisees, nor rabbis dominated the synagogue scene. Ancient Jewish synagogues rather were administered locally by Jews of any rank and even gender who resided in their respective communities. Thus, just as there were multiple ecclesiae, uh, I think that is going to be Greek, sorry, all of our listeners. So were there multiple synagogi, and these uh, may have varied in their attitudes towards Jesus' followers, depending on the time and region in question. So none of these things are just monolithic ideas. Uh, he goes on in the next section. The earliest Christian documents at our disposal portray Jesus and his Jewish followers in conflict with other Jews in synagogue settings. Uh, So if Jesus remained a faithful Jew throughout his life, perhaps some of his first followers are to be blamed for the split between ecclesia and synagogue. And Paul is often seen as the main culprit. Darn that, Paul, and how he hates Judaism. We already looked at that in our last episode, right, Brent? We looked at Paul and his Judaism. Right, yeah. Very Jewish, that that Paul guy was. Even when uh, Paul talks about it in Galatians, his word choice and conceptualization did not stem from a desire to create a rival institution separate from the Jewish synagogue. Paul was no church administrator. Let's see. uh, Dr. Oliver continues a little bit later. Paul, however, believed that the eschatological ecclesia of God would include not just Jews, but Gentiles as well. 
Paul's Messianic beliefs and views on Gentile-Jewish relations, however, got him into trouble with local Jewish authorities. He reports receiving lashes by Jews. He says that about five times. 2 Corinthians 11 would be an example. Talks more in 2 Corinthians 11 about all kinds of identification as a Jew. Ironically, Paul's submission, this is Dr. Oliver again, ironically, Paul's submission to this form of punishment underlines his Jewish affiliation since Jewish synagogue could not punish Jews could, excuse me, could only punish Jews, not Gentiles in this way. So the fact that Paul would receive those lashes would speak to his adherence and submission to these Jewish identifications and parameters. At any rate, Paul was not the only Jewish follower of Jesus, Dr. Oliver reminds us. The Sadducees headed the temple of Jerusalem, not synagogues, and the accounts of both Josephus and Acts portray the conflict between Jesus' Jewish disciples and the Sadducees as an intra-Jewish affair. So we've already looked at the book of Acts in our last episode, but even if you look at Josephus, portrays it the same way. This is an intra-Jewish situation between Jesus followers and non-Jesus followers in a Jewish world. Indeed, so long as there were Jewish disciples of Jesus who remained rooted in Judaism, it is misguided to speak of a definitive split of the Ecclesia from its Jewish matrix. And I I feel like maybe our session four material um, sort of speaks to that in a way, in in the sense that Paul is um, writing a lot of different things to a lot of different churches in a lot of different geographic areas with different cultural contexts. And yeah, like naturally those, those differences, there's so many variables that go into a particular community. Like, yeah, these relationships are going to be different. Uh, the, you know, the arguments are going to be different. The reasons to diverge are going to be different. So it makes sense that these would occur at different times. Yeah, absolutely. Good point. Uh, Let's see here. He goes on a little bit later, a few paragraphs down. Even if the evidence is slim, there is some reason to believe that at least some Jewish followers of Jesus resettled or continued to abide in Jerusalem even after the first Jewish revolt. Some scholars, therefore, have pointed to the second Jewish revolt. That's the Bar Kokhba revolt, by the way, 132, 136-ish. Um, as the occupation and that Roman occupation as a definitive moment in the parting of ways between Judaism and Christianity. Conventional wisdom would have it that Jewish Christ followers living in Israel at the time faced an existential dilemma, choose Bar Kokhba or reaffirm their allegiance to Jesus as true Messiah. By refusing to support the war, these Jewish followers of Jesus would have further distanced themselves from their own people, instigating the final break between Christianity and Judaism. In hindsight, it's easy to see the Bar Kokhba revolt as a decisive turning point in early Jewish-Christian relations. And that is by far a very popular scholastic opinion. It makes a ton of sense. Um, uh, let's see here. What's the next thing he says? For Eusebius, the Bar Kokhba revolt also brought an end to the Jewish ecclesia of Jerusalem that had been established since the days of James, the brother of Jesus, since Hadrian, Hadrian banned all Jews from living in the holy city. And not only does it make sense that there is a push away because these Jesus followers wouldn't support the Bar Kokhba revolt, but also because think about what the political ramifications are. It makes sense that these early, early second century 
uh, Christian fathers would want to be distancing themselves from a Jewish identity if the Jews are known for these political revolts and fighting against Rome. Does that make sense, Brent? Yeah, I mean, we talked about that stuff in session five. Like, there's there's a lot of outside forces um, at play here as far as how, how, like, how does Rome see all of these different movements within the Jewish and Christian world? And, you know, how much... How much trouble are you going to go through depending on which one you identify with? Does it matter which one you identify with as far as how Rome sees you? Right. Absolutely. And um, and we worked pretty hard in session five to say, I think these, this split, this schism is already underway a couple decades before this point. I, I love what, what Dr. Oliver is doing here. Is it absolutely a definitive part of the conversation? Sure it is. I think it's coming a bit too late. So let's keep reading and see what he says. Uh, He points out that Justin Martyr himself admits in his dialogue with Trifo that there were still Torah-observant Jewish Christ followers in his day. Indeed, Torah-observant Christ followers probably persisted until the dawn of Islam in the 7th century. And we even look at some stuff uh, in Turkey, Brent, on our trip. You've seen some of it. There's evidence that suggests that you have uh, Jewish Christian worship taking place easily into 4th or 5th. And it, we even have a piece of evidence going into the seventh century, um, and, and we've actually been able to see it with our own with our own eyeballs. There, there's there are no clean lines in history, basically. Yeah, and we wish there were. the The thing about humanity is it's always complex, and everywhere you go is going to be slightly different. And yeah, everything he said at the beginning, like Judaism is no monolith, Christianity was not a monolith at this point in history, especially. And so you got all kinds of different relationships there. One of the um... One of the people that I I follow kind of in the technology world, um, he likes to talk about adoption of technologies as an S-curve. And so you have this slow ramp up at the beginning, and then you get to about like this 10% mark, and then all of a sudden the adoption is just rapid. And you go from 10% to 90% sure, so rapidly. But even, even when you get to that, like, oh, we have fully adopted this, like you're still somewhere less than a hundred percent. So it was kind of the slow start to the, to the, um, to the divergence, but then you have these, you know, more noticeable parts of the graph, but you have these long tails on either side where, um, you know, it just doesn't, doesn't work the way that we would want to cleanly separate it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so going back to, Uh, What Mr. Oliver says here, for this reason and many others, some scholars have argued against pinpointing a single date by which all Judaism and Christianity were clearly demarcated from each other. Cautioning against teleological interpretations of early Jewish-Christian relations, Reed and Becker argue that Judaism and Christianity remain intertwined long after the second century, parting and joining and parting and joining again for many centuries thereafter. Meaningful interaction between Jews and Christians persisted for longer than previously thought and was not restricted to the margins of Judaism and Christianity, but shaped both religious traditions in significant ways. I, I really appreciate that notes. And, and speaking of notes, by the way, all throughout these chapters and this whole book, just really good prolific footnoting, uh, great research, uh, great places to follow up on sources. So good stuff. Um, just a little bit later, he says, uh, uh, John Chrysostom, for example, condemned from his pulpit Christians who attended Jewish synagogues in his day. 
Apparently, there were Christians who had no qualms attending simultaneously church and synagogue, an important reminder that early Christian-Jewish relations was not exclusively dominated animosity. So they were, they were involved in both traditions, in both practices, in both um, lines of thought, exploring both like approaches to uh, their faith, uh, which I thought was really really interesting and, and something that I feel like, I don't know how we would do that today, but it seems like, um, something to consider as far as like, Oh, it is, it is okay to learn from other people. Yeah. And that general idea, uh, yeah, just that general concept of, especially in the world that we live in today with the internet and information and exposure to a shrinking global community, we're just exposed to other worldviews. So in, in an even more expansive way than even their world, I would think that's something that we have to grapple with, uh, the ramifications of that. Uh, let's see here. There's important caveats. Nevertheless, even non-Jews were able to distinguish between Christians and Jews by the second century, which suggests that the boundaries between Jewish and Christian identities were relatively clear by then. So you can see that that demarcation on both sides is starting to become more and more clear. Yeah, even for the people who don't necessarily want to make the distinction themselves, others are making it for them. That is correct. Yeah, it's a great way of phrasing that. Yep. Let's see, he ends that section by saying, at the same time, the persistence of Torah-observant Christ followers of Jewish heritage into the second century and beyond is an important exception that demands special attention and challenges the traditional boundaries that have been erected between Judaism and Christianity. The reality, skipping just a little bit ahead, the reality is that Judaism and Christianity are viewed as distinct religious systems virtually everywhere on the planet today. So how in the world did we get here? The rift, he continues between Judaism and Christianity has usually been explained on ideological grounds. Jews and Christians separated because they uh, differed over key issues such as the identity of the Messiah, the nature of the divine, and the role of Torah. Torah. Undoubtedly, theological differences played their role, but other factors in the political, social, and economic realms should be considered as well. Yeah, this part was particularly um, insightful to me. because you, you, you always kind of think like, follow the money. Um, and that's basically been true all along. You know, there are economic factors that are, are just like, can you even survive? Can you live where you live if you don't ascribe to a particular belief or religious system or whatever? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and he did he did do a good job in this section, like kind of walking through the evolution of what's happening in Christian uh, orthopraxy, maybe the relationship between orthodoxy and orthopraxy, um, and just how it's evolving. Uh, He says, another divisive point concerning the role and place of Torah, given the belief that Jesus had inaugurated a new Messianic age. For some Jewish disciples of Jesus, business went on as usual. Jesus' followers were to continue observing Torah in total. Others, however, believed that neither Jewish nor Gentile Christ followers were bound to the Mosaic law since Jesus had had established a new covenant. A little bit later, whatever the case, many early Christians and Jews soon interpreted Paul to say that they that there was no Torah observance. Evidence for this misunderstanding of Paul's thought appears ironically in a New Testament writing that staunchly defends Paul's fidelity to the Torah, the Acts of the Apostles, which we looked at in the previous episode. 
I love that. Um, the irony of people holding that position when X very clearly uh, goes to great length, Luke does, to say that's not the case. <laughs> what are you going to do? What are you going to do? That's right. By the second century, however, the tables were already beginning to turn. Rather than debating whether Gentile Christians should be circumcised and keep the Torah, the majority of Christian dialogue now began to wonder whether J- Jewish Christ followers could keep the Torah at all. So you can see the evolution of the conversation changing. In Acts and in the New Testament, it's largely about what to do with Gentiles. But then a century later, the conversation has shifted and changed to what do we do with the Jews? You can feel you can feel the the as he says, the tables turning. And and then a section that I really appreciated because it gets more to the heart of what I proposed in session five. As previously mentioned, other factors besides theological Uh, shaped early Jewish-Christian relations. Under Roman Empire, Jews were generally afforded the right to observe their ancient traditions, however bizarre they may have seemed to Roman eyes. Jews were granted these rights because of the respect ancient people paid to ancestral customs. There was a limit, however, to pagan tolerance. Jews could live Jewishly, provided they did not actively seek to lead non-Jews away from observing their native customs, which included, of course, idolatry and the veneration of many divinities. Many non-Jews in antiquity found Jewish tradition attractive and attended local Jewish synagogues, even adopting some of the Jewish customs. Yet most Gentile aficionados of Judaism remained entrenched in their pagan ways, never formally disavowing polytheism. Those who became full-fledged Jews, which in the case of males required circumcision, were probably a minority. It was in the socio-political interest of the Jewish people to maintain a certain level of discretion while preserving their ancestral ways. One radical Jewish movement, however, did not care for this status quo. Dun, 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 dun. Its members believed that the certain Jew from Nazareth, through though crucified by the Romans, was the Messiah, had risen from the dead, and was ushered in a, had ushered in a new age which the nations were called to join Israel in worshiping one true God. This was a, sub, a subversive demand, if only because it required Gentiles to, Gentiles to cease adoring their ancestral gods. As a minority group to the Greco-Roman world, the Jewish community would have naturally been worried about the potential negative impact of the messianic enthusiasm of Jesus' followers on their social well-being. The scenario explains in part why some synagogues may have excluded Jewish followers of Jesus f- uh, from their premises. And then that, I think we call back to our study in Revelation, Brent, and the synagogue of Satan and what our explanation of that was. Uh, he spends a little bit of time in this next section talking about Paul and the examples that we find in the book of Acts about uh, just the relationships you see, um, particularly in Ephesus, between the Jews and Paul and uh, obviously, the riot, great as Artemis of the Ephesians, and yet there's this relationship where there is no, like, they don't make a distinction between the Jewish followers of Jesus and just Jews. And it may be that in that story, the Jews are wanting to distance themselves from Paul himself for very obvious social reasons, but there's no distinction as far as faith groups and who these worshipers are. So I thought that was pretty good, pretty good little... Um, and then he goes on uh, to start talking about uh, uh, what's called Fiscus Judaicus. Um, some argue that the imposition of the Fiscus Judaicus accelerated and even finalized the parting of ways between Jews and, Christ- and Christ followers. Vespasian introduced this levy as a punishment against the Jews for the first Jewish revolt against Rome. Instead of contributing the half-shekel to the Temple of Jerusalem, now destroyed, all Jews throughout the Roman Empire had to finance the reconstruction of the Temple of Jupiter 
Capitolinus in Rome, a humiliating punishment. In the mid-80s, Domitian intensified the collection of the Jewish tax. So if this is going on, Brent, just again, his point, Dr. Oliver's point about how this is not one singular moment of a singular break, but all these things lining up, the under Vespasian, then under Domitian, and then after Domitian, we talked about in session five, uh, Trajan, and then Hadrian, all these things, all these opportunities where Judaism either protects Gentiles or Gentiles push away from Judaism, and this dance that just keeps going back and forth between uh, these groups. Well, I'm not Jewish. Well, yes, I'm Jewish. Well, we'll protect you. Well, we won't want to protect you. Like all of this, uh, this is a very interesting sociopolitical situation. Uh, Let's see here. Here's a quote. Uh, Jewish Christians who had allegedly been evicted from Jewish synagogues were exposed as tax evaders since they were missing from the tax registries, while Gentile Christians were charged with atheism because of the rejection of pagan gods. When they were discovered discovered during proceedings of the Fiscus Judaicus and were subsequently prosecuted uh, to raise revenue for the tax. Um, Goes on a little bit to talk about Nerva's policy. Uh, Heemstra interprets Nerva's reform as a pivotal moment in the partings of the ways between Judaism and Christianity, since Jewish Christians, Jewish apostates, were no longer regarded as Jews by Rome. They were no different from Gentile Christians, whom the Roman authorities already distinguished from Jews. The year 96 CE, therefore, marks the decisive separation between Judaism as we know it today and Christianity as we know it today, Um, which I'm not sure if I would totally wholeheartedly agree with. But again, you see that post-Domitian, pre-Trajan-Hadrian distinction starting to happen between Jews and Christians. And who is Rome coming after, Jews or Christian? And depending on who they're coming after, groups are responding in different ways. So just a great overall... Um, like Dr. Oliver didn't say, hey, this was the moment, this was it, but just took a huge, uh, wide look at all the different dynamics that are taking place within the conversation that lead uh, to a schism, probably over time. And even during that chapter saying, um, it's also wrong to say that the schism was ever over, because until Islam truly comes in and takes over the entire area, you you largely have areas of Jewish followers of Jesus all the way up to the seventh century. I appreciated him making that point as well. Substantially later than I think most people would expect without, uh, without a deeper knowledge of the history. Absolutely. But also help me make sense of some of the things that I had seen in Turkey. Like we, I mean, you've got to see some of the stuff that I get so pumped up about and man, like, uh, there's that cool little, uh, menorah cross thing that we get to take a look at one site, Brent, and that dates till fourth, fifth century. And it was like, man, that's late. How could that possibly be? Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and another couple of pieces that's like fifth and sixth century. And you're like, how, how can there be Jewish Christian? But uh, Dr. Oliver's point is well taken. Like there is no monolithic, this is the only way that people saw it. There were corners and patches where Judaism and Christianity just continued to interact together at that point in history in that part of the world. And I think this chapter has um, kind of a Bama flavor to it in the sense that it's bringing a whole bunch of different viewpoints together and putting them all on the table. And so if there's one of these that you're particularly curious about, like check out the footnotes because there are tons of um, 
deeper sources that argue for any of the given things that we've talked about so far. Yeah, uh, yeah, and and I think that chapter even shaped some of my own thinking. Um, I, I think if I were to go back and do session five again, I might soften some of my hard stance there. I think I still want to make the same points that I make in session five, but I think his points are just really well taken. I, I liked his presentation of, look at all of these points that had to have, they had to have an effect on the Jewish-Christian relationship. Um, look at this point. Look at that point. Uh, and yet look at the fact that that relationship even survives in all these areas. So, um, yeah, very dynamic, and I, I appreciated that. All right, let's do, the, let's do the next chapter, Brent. Okay, we have From Constantine to the Holocaust, the Church and the Jews by Rabbi Dr. Eugene Korn. He is the former academic director of the Center for Jewish-Christian Understanding in Jerusalem, and the co-director of its Institute for Theological Inquiry. And of course, he has written a whole host of things as well as all of these people seem to have. They are prolific writers. And so what what does uh, what does Korn have to tell us at this point about this history? Oh, this is this is going to be a pretty like gut wrenching, dark chapter to just have to wade through. Um <laughs> from Constantine to the Holocaust is going to have some dark chapters, Brent Billings, um, uh, as far as Christianity and our stance toward Judaism. Speaking of Constantine, real quick, just jumping back to the last chapter, uh, Oliver doesn't really mention Constantine as any, like, as even a possible decisive point in in the divergence. So I, I found that kind of interesting. Yeah, you know, by the time you get to that spot, there's going to be hardly, there's going to be very little effect on the divergence. If things are surviving, they're surviving. Kind of that point about like, you know, you still see it into the 5th and 6th centuries. Right. Um, but at the same point, by the time you get there, you've now had like at least 100, 150 years of early Christian father writings that are, uh, we're even going to look at it in this chapter here, talking about the uh, ad- adversus Udeos, um, against the Jews. I mean, that starts with, with Augustine in the fourth century, but really what he's doing is, is leaning on even early church fathers, St. Ignatius, Irenaeus, uh, those early church fathers that are very much separating themselves from Judaism and writing what really seems to be very anti-Semitic stuff. So, yeah, it does make sense. It just is, it was curious to me, um, that such a, such a defining moment in history in general, didn't really have that much of an effect on on that particular situation. Yeah, absolutely. All right, uh, probably a little bit shorter conversation here because I'm just going to kind of pop through. And they have all kinds of really good pictures in this chapter, but there's probably no way, Brent, to put those photographs in our show notes, is there? Uh, they were all Wikipedia Creative Commons Woo-hoo! images, so all I right. should be able to find them and put them in the notes. All right, Brent will have some of these images hopefully in the show notes. Let's see, let's go. All right, that makes me excited. I just got, I just got excited about this chapter. <laughs> All right, from the time Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire under Constantine in the early 4th century under until the 1960s, the dominant church theology regarding Jews and Judaism was known in Christian scholarly circles as the Adversus Udeos, which translates as against the Jews. It's the Adversus Udeos tradition, a term taken from the taken from the writings of Augustine. I can never decide if I want to call him Augustine or Augustine. I think I've I think Augustine. it's supposed to be Augustine, but I, I believe so. And accurately dubbed the teaching of contempt by Jules Isaac in the 20, 20th century, uh, for nearly 1500 years, Christian theology saw Judaism and Christianity as involved in a theological duel to the death. And it was a duel that Jews could not afford to win. 
owing to their weak political, social, and economic conditions in Christendom. Sometimes this duel was carried out in the medieval disputations uh, that the church forced Jews to engage in for the purpose of demonstrating that Christianity was true and Judaism was false, or at least no longer true. A little bit later, he says, paradoxically, uh, the Christian denigration of Judaism developed from a conundrum that existed precisely because Christianity emerged from Jewish roots. Just a little bit later, it says, if Jews no longer had a divine mission, how could Christian theologians explain the distressing fact of Jewish survival? And how could Christians relate to these rebellious and blind Jews? And so then it talks about the famous icon of Ecclesia et, et Synagoga, Ecclesia et Synagoga, found in the Cathedral of Strasbourg. Help me out, Brent. You're the European guy. <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I think I think you're pretty close. Strasbourg, Strasbourg or something. Okay, probably. As well as other cathedrals throughout Europe, and and, and really, there's a picture there. If you get it in the sh- in the show notes here, uh, Ecclesia. I'm reading. I'm reading um, Rabbi Korn's notes here. This is how he describes the image. Yes, absolutely. Ecclesia stands erect. So Ecclesia is going to be the representation of what, Brent? Of the Christians. Okay, Christians. And then Synagoga, obviously. Uh, Representing Judaism. Okay. So Ecclesia stands erect and triumphant. Her staff, symbolizing Christian rule, is straight. She wears a crown of majesty. Synagoga, uh, representing Judaism, is downcast, defeated, forlorn. She wears a blindfold, preventing her from seeing Christian truth. Her staff is broken. And her scriptures are slipping out of her hand toward the ground. Regnant Christianity has triumphed over Judaism. If this kind of starts to make your stomach hurt, uh, we're only just beginning, but that's probably the right the right feeling. And this this is the kind of like I don't know. I, I have a hard time engaging arts like this. It's like how do you know that that's what they're really trying to say? Uh, but I mean, it is it is everywhere like this. Um, and take a look at the image because the description fits quite aptly uh, exactly what Korn says. Yeah, absolutely. And oftentimes you have the theology and the preaching to back up the icon, the iconography that you find in these churches as well. Right, yeah. Um, in the 4th century, uh, Augustine of Hippo answered the above conundrum by teaching that Jews bear the curse of Cain for killing Jesus, for which they lost their homeland and were scattered. A little bit later, while Augustine's influence towers above earlier church fathers, he built his adversus Udeos theology on their prior teachings. So Augustine is far from the one to start this train of thought. He simply systematized it in some way. A little bit later, this Christian theological anti-Judaism easily and often metastasized into overt anti-Semitism, both in attitude and action. The adversus Udeos theology spawned ugly depictions of Jews that portrayed them as sons of the devil and accursed Christ killers. Again, this image is depicted graphically in European iconography found in churches. And then it shows another image from Ecclesia at Synagoga from Notre Dame, um, uh, the cathedral there. And uh, here is Rabbi Korn's description. Uh, and you can look at the photo here. An ugly, sinister serpent encircles the head of synagoga, indicating a not-so-subtle transition, and, and that serpent is over her eyes. So in the same way as the blindfold, she's blinded to a, not being able to see the truth. But in this case, it's not a blindfold, it's the serpent, uh, indicating a not-so-subtle transition from the falsehood of Judaism to the wickedness 
of Jews. Worse still, Jews were sometimes portrayed as genetically determined, uh, weak-willed, filthy swine who were the antithesis of Christian virtue and integrity. Uh, And then he shows another relief, so another photo if you see it. Uh, In the notes there was a common motif, uh, the Yudensaw. Um, Why am I having a hard time saying that correctly? Yudensaw. I'm not sure. Yudensaw, the Jew's pig. This relief is found in a church in Wittenberg, Germany. It shows numerous Jews suckling a swine's teats and a rabbi looking into the pig's anus. And other versions of Judensel depict Jews having intercourse with swine. These obscene images reflect on Jews as people, not merely Judaism as a faith. It's a great point here by Rabbi Korn. You're watching the evolution of this thought. It used to be just that, well, Judaism was blind. And then it was that Judaism was wicked. Now it's absolute denigration of Jews as people, as human beings. Does that make sense, Brent? Yeah, yeah. And ugh. <laughs> like talk about an uncomfortable chapter to read yeah. in this book and an uncomfortable period of history to consider because it is uh, uh, yeah it's it's so far outside of like how i think about everything it's like how how do they get to this point yep yeah absolutely um, going back to reading corn here in this chapter, uh, while there certainly were periods of calm and relative tolerance between Jews and Christians during these 1600 years, all of this theological hostility generated frequent Christian alienation uh, from hatred of and violence toward Jews, real anti-Semitism in the flesh, not merely in theory or theology. Jews in turn hated Christians, but they lacked the power to publicly condemn them or commit violence against them. Here are some examples of this tragic, theologically-fueled Christian anti-Semitism over the centuries. And then Rabbi Korn gives us a list. First of all, during the Crusades, crusade, and this is relevant, Brent, a, a lot of people often write me emails, or we might be on a trip in Israel, and people will say, well, if this is so Jewish, and if this is so obvious to Jews, uh, why don't Jews believe in Jesus? Why don't, they get, why don't they get it? Why don't they see? Why don't they accept him as Messiah? Here's a good list of reasons. During the Crusades, Crusaders massacred thousands of Jews living in the Rhine Valley. Uh, Second item, during the Inquisitions from the 12th through the 15th centuries, Jews were tortured, killed, and forced to convert to Christianity. In 1391 to 1392 alone, the Spanish church was responsible for killing approximately 100,000 Jews, forcibly converting 100,000 Jews, and exiling another 100,000 from Spain. Uh, Next item, at the end of the 12th and beginning of the 13th century, Pope Innocent III forced Jews to wear distinctive badges on their garments so that Christians could keep their distance from Jews. Uh, Next item, Pope Innocent IV in the 13th century and Julius III in the 16th century ordered the burning of the Talmud. Next item, during Holy Week, it was common in Europe for Christians to destroy Jewish property and attack Jews. Next item, from the 12th century through the 20th century, Jews were accused of blood libels, which led to massacres and pogroms against Jews. Next item, in the 16th century, Pope Gregory XIII forced Jews into squalid ghettos, made them attend weekly sermons aimed at conversion. One can see today at the entrance to the old Roman ghetto a Christian statue imploring the stubborn Jews to join the church. 
Next item, Pope Pius VI in the 18th century forbade Jews to put up tombstones in Jewish cemeteries and renovate synagogues. Uh, leading to the last item on this list, which isn't even comprehensive, Brent, the Vatican frankly confiscated Jewish schools and synagogues, converting them into churches and monasteries. And if you know your World War II history, you might recognize some of the atrocities committed during the Holocaust in this list. Yes. I would think. Yeah. Oh, goodness. Yeah. I, I think he's going to circle around to that, uh, the Holocaust specifically here as well. It should be noted that the majority of atrocities carried out in the name of the church were not carried out by church officials, were often not carried out by church officials, or even pious Christians, but people who were Christians in name only. Yet these persecutions of Jews in early and medieval church history were directly related to the church's official adversus udeos teachings. As noted, some of the most prominent church fathers and later Christian theologians taught the most toxic anti-Semitic rhetoric, which influenced those living in Christian culture. This unique form of Christian love, quote-unquote, for Jews, was not limited to the Catholic Church. Here is what Martin Luther counseled towards Jews. So here is Martin Luther. What then shall we Christians do with this damned, rejected race of Jews? Since they live among us, we dare not tolerate their conduct. Now that we are aware of their lying and reviling and blaspheming, if we do, we become sharers in their lies, curses, and blasphemy. Thus, we cannot extinguish the unquenchable fire of divine wrath of which the prophets speak, nor can we convert the Jews. With prayer and fear of God, we must practice a sharp mercy. I shall give you my sincere advice. First, to set fire to their synagogues and to bury and cover with dirt whatever will not burn, so that no man will ever again see a stone or cinder of them. This is to be done for the honor of our Lord and of Christianity, so that God may see that we are Christians and do not condone or knowingly tolerate such public lying, cursing, and blaspheming of his son and of his Christians." (laughs) What a way, what a way to say that sharp mercy. It's like, uh, do you understand mercy? <laughs> you, it, do you remember the relief with the, uh, Udensau, the, the Jews suckling at the teats of the right. pig and the picture that we showed that was actually at Martin Luther's church, believe it or not. I mean, after reading that, believe it. Um, yeah, no kidding. Uh, let's see. Let's see what else we got here for notes. Christian and Jewish historians in the 20th century have shown that this theological anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism that was taught for 1,500 years throughout Christendom played a substantive role in the relatively easy acceptance of Hitler's plan to exterminate Europe's Jews during World War II. Nazism certainly was not a Christian ideology, but Christian theology played a necessary role in the near success of the pagan final solution by convincing Christians that Jews had been rejected by God and should be objects of Christian scorn. Their forcible rejection by the state was then easier to accept. It should be noted that not all Christian theology was supersessionist in the modern period. That is, not all Christians believed that God had transferred his covenant from Jewish Israel to the Gentile church. Oh, And then uh, just a little bit more of a section where he goes through um, what, what was Judaism Judaism's response? How did they handle... Uh, Christianity. So we talked about how Christianity talked about Judaism. How did Judaism talk about Christianity? This section was particularly fascinating to me, perhaps uh, out of ignorance and novelty, but um, yeah, really, really interesting to look at the other side's perspective. Tell me some of the things that stood out to you. Uh, like Maimonides, um, which we, we've talked about, I believe, um, some of his Midrash 
uh, at times and, and just like knowing what his perspective was on Christians, but also like considering that in the context of he didn't actually, um, converse with any Christians. It's just like, what is, what does he know about from books? Right. And, uh, the, the difference that it makes, um, to be a part of a Christian community and be in relationship with Christians, Yeah, that's how, a great that, point. how that affects the views, but also like balancing that with, well, yes, that could affect it in, in those positive ways, but it also could be sort of an implicit pressure, um, yep. socially, economically, whatever. It's like, well, we have to say nice things about you because we don't have any political power. So there's just, there's so many, so many facets Absolutely. To, the, to the dynamic. Absolutely. Yeah. And he, uh, Rabbi Korn does a good job of just showing kind of the evolution of thought. Like originally Judaism is going to call like Jewish uh, Christians, Jewish followers of Jesus are going to, they're going to call that heresy, but they're also going to make, like they do not see Christians on the same level as they would just see like Roman pagan idolaters. They see Christians as... Uh, like in their own unique category um, that have a unique relationship uh, with God. I love this quote here. This isn't even highlighted, but I found it. Um, let's see here. Significantly, Judaism teaches that each covenant is independently valid and there is no need for Gentiles to enter the Mosaic covenant for them to be beloved by God or gain eternal life, a portion in the world to come in rabbinic parlance. This is why Talmudic and post-Talmudic Judaism has never been keen on missionary activity, there is simply no theological reason for Gentiles to convert to Judaism in order to be loved by God or appreciated by Jews. Mm. I found that to be quite... People always ask me about Judaism and evangelism. And in their world and their understanding and their theology, you just don't need to because God can take care of all nations, and that's God's prerogative. We just have to worry about our nation. And what Christianity is doing is they're arguing for a more shared care and compassion and identity as a shared humanity together. That's the interaction in your New Testament. Right. Oh, let's see here. Just, yeah, just a good little summary. I was going to spend less time here. Um, he does a little, he does a quick little uh, kind of summary of the evolution. Let's see here. A temporal map, he calls it. Um, says, sometime in the first three centuries, Jewish Christians came to be regarded as heretics. Menim or apostates from Judaism, when they ceased observing the Mosaic commandments. Jewish belief in Jesus and the New Covenant were considered prohibited idolatry for Jews. In the Middle Ages, however, when Jews lived in small communities in Christian Europe and were dependent on economic interaction with Christians, kind of what you were talking, Brent, a moment ago, most rabbis in Christendom ruled that Christians were not idolaters, but they still considered belief in Christian doctrine to be illegitimate avodazara, or essentially worship. Uh, in the late Middle Ages and early modernity, the majority of rabbis living, within, uh, living with Christians did not consider Christianity to be idolatry for non-Jews. So it's not okay for a Jew to be a Christian. It's okay for a non-Jew to be a Christian. And then from the 17th century through the 20th century, when Christian toleration of Jews grew, a number of rabbinic authorities began to appreciate Christianity as a positive historical and theological phenomenon for Gentiles that helped spread fundamental beliefs of Judaism and thus advance the Jewish religious purpose. Two points are critical, he says. First, Jewish law regarding Christians and Christianity has undergone an evolution as historical circumstances has changed. Second, uh, mainly like the Holocaust. 
Second, halakha, and that's Jewish law, and traditional Jewish theology contain the seeds for a limited theological openness for, by recognizing the possibility of other valid religions and forms of worship. In principle, then, Jewish law allows for a positive view of Christianity for Gentiles. I thought that was very important for him to point out. So you're saying there's a little bit of hope. But yeah, there's a little bit of hope, just like there was all throughout Tanakh. A little bit of hope, a little sprinkling of hope. Uh, not much. I, I mean, I can't believe there's a sprinkling of hope based on all the things that we're reading about in this chapter that we've done to Jews. Uh, and he goes on in the next section to talk about that, basically what's happened with supersessionist and replacement theology, um, what, what's happened just because of World War II and the Shoah and all that. Um, yet other Jews are more forward-looking, he says. Their hearts are still filled with the Messianic dream of Isaiah, Micah, and Zechariah, in which peace between Israel and the nations is realized. In Europe and America, this means mutual appreciation between Jews and Christians, with each understanding and evaluating the faith of the other. Much of the difficult history relations, excuse me, much of the difficult historical relations just cited seem distant from the contemporary ex- experience between Jews and Christians in America and Europe. Paradoxically, much of this newfound amity is rooted in the uh, the nadir of Jewish-Christian relations, the Holocaust, which still fits under the purview of this study, and he offers some comments there as well. And obviously, this is not a universal transformation of thought across uh, everyone, but it's kind of amazing to think um, for some people how much of a shift has occurred and the fact that there are people alive today who have seen almost the entirety of that movement play out in front of them. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. To go from a very, um, like a modernity that was very, very open to Christian Jewish relations to watching what happens with the two world wars. And then, and we're, I, I still find it, man, I just find it so amazing that we're even able to entertain any of those conversations. Uh, post Holocaust, I mean, I, it's completely understandable why <laughs> uh, Jews would be so unbelievably hesitant to entertain any kind of conversations about those things, and yet uh, we still find ourselves in a world where uh, dialogue is doing some pretty cool things. Yeah, certainly. Well, I think that's all I got today, Brent. A couple of good chapters. Again, we recommend getting the book yourself so you can read it in depth, outline your own notes. Look at the footnotes and do your own research, but a couple really helpful chapters putting history in context today. Yeah, kind of an interesting dynamic between the two chapters. The The first one covered a much shorter period of history, uh, but I found I was reading it quite a bit slower to try to like wrap my mind around all the different things that were going on. Uh, but then the second one covered a much larger part of history, and I, I kind of flew through it. So um, I don't know what that means, but... It's definitely definitely a good read in both on in both chapters. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, you can find uh, a link to the book in the show notes. Um, a link to I'm going to try to find links to um, the two authors and of course those images. Uh, if I if they're available, I will have them uh, in the notes as well as in the chapter markers. And yeah, so that does it for this episode. If you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And you can find more details about the show at com. So thanks for joining us on the Baymaw Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.